You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, guys. Hey, good morning. Hey, we have a really fun morning uh, today. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, go there. I'm going to talk for a little while about the last uh, several verses of chapter 4. And then we get to enter into the great celebration of the church for the last 2,000 years. And that is that we get to watch uh, baptism and cheer and, and enjoy um, all that that means uh, for the life of those that are going to be baptized, but just for us in general as a, as a testimony of God's faithfulness and what it symbolizes, uh, this work of Christ. And so um, we are going to get to do that. All right, so you're in First uh, Peter chapter 4. You're finding your way there. This is, let me go ahead and tell you, um, this will be the fourth sermon. So we started... Uh, looking at First Peter, we've been walking through it verse by verse for a couple of months now. Um, and as it turns out, I look at so this is like the fourth sermon in this one letter that the title of the sermon has something to do with suffering. Uh, Peter, this is on the top of his mind. He's he's writing to these believers in Asia Minor. It's it's modern day Turkey, and they were facing really hard times in their life. They were, persecution was coming. It was very difficult to be a Christian in the world that they lived in. And so Peter uh, is going to write again, uh, yet again, in this letter, this short letter, he's going to address suffering. To, to start the morning off, I want to um, uh, read a little bit from a movie uh, so, so a few years ago, the movie Shadowlands came out. Anthony Hopkins is cast in the role of C.S. Lewis. And uh, Deborah Winger plays the, uh, the woman, Joy, who is, is, becomes the late-in-life love interest of C.S. Lewis. He ends up marrying uh, uh, Joy um, before her death. So... But the movie opens up. It's very interesting how they have framed the movie. So the movie opens up. Lewis is giving a lecture in a lecture hall. And by this time in Lewis's life, he is already world-renowned. So he's written the Chronicles of Narnia. He's written Mere Christianity. He has written a book called The Problem of Pain, where he's dealing with the question of suffering. And in fact, most of the time that Lewis was invited to speak somewhere... He was invited to speak or asked to speak on the problem of suffering, uh, on pain and, and suffering in the world. And so the movie opens up. He's at a lecture, um, and the lecture is to the Association of Christian Teachers, and he's talking about the problem of pain. This is what he says. So listen to this. Isn't God supposed to be good? Isn't he supposed to love us? Does God want us to suffer? Well, what if the answer to that question is yes? I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he makes us the gift of suffering. I am not sure that God wants us to be happy. I think he wants us to be able to love and be loved. He wants us to grow up. 
We think our childish toys bring us all the happiness there is, and our nursery is the whole wide world. But something must drive us out of the nursery to the world of others, and that something is suffering. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves forms of men, the blows of his chisel, which hurt so much, are what make us perfect. You know, the truth is, is that <clears throat> as you're invited in as the one viewing it, as you're invited in as the one who's seeing Lewis's life unfold, as, as the hearer um, of those words, part of you goes, yes, you know what? That's absolutely true. That is absolutely theologically rock solid what it is that Lewis said. And it is. The problem for Lewis is while it was true, it was not tested. Within 10 minutes of the movie starting, Lewis, uh, we find out, is a children's author who doesn't know any children. He's an academic expert on medieval romance and has had no experience with real romance. And he is a renowned speaker on the problem of pain and suffering, and he has insulated himself from all pain and suffering. Lewis knew a truth, but it had not been tested. And I told you that when we started this letter a few months ago, that one of the things that Peter's doing is saying, listen, here's what I want you to know, believer. I want you to know this faith that you have in Jesus, this faith that you have in the Son of the living God who died on the cross for your sins, who was buried in a grave and came back to life, resurrected life, so that you share in his death and you share in his life. In fact, what we'll, what we'll see a picture of this morning so I want you to know that's more than just true in your head. It's more than just something that satisfies us on a Sunday morning. It is true. It's true on Sunday morning as it is on Monday morning. And that when you get up and go to work, you can take your faith with you because we have a faith in a Jesus that lives in the real world and that Thursday afternoon when you go to hear the results you can take your faith with you. Or Friday evening, just before you thought, man, this is going to be a great weekend. We've got it all planned. And yet, like sometimes it happens, that your family unravels. And what you thought was going to be 48 hours of joy and family time ends up being a, a battleground. And maybe you're here this morning and that's been your weekend. And you're looking for a little respite. You know what Peter says is, look, this faith that we have, this Jesus that we trust, it's real life. And so he's going to talk to these believers yet once again about suffering. See, last week we looked at in verse 11, and it, it, it is kind of funny how it closes. It, it closes in verse 11 with an amen. It, it looks as though that Peter's wrapping up this letter that he's writing. And it, it's just before he signs off, just before he says, you know, sincerely yours, or, uh, you know, however it is you sign your... In fact, the email, what, what did this say uh, last week? Um, uh, 
The end of all things is at hand is where we started. I signed a few emails this week. The end of all things is at hand, Ross. That's kind of weird. But that's what, so he did. But, but before he does this, he's like, hey, wait a minute. I got a little bit of ink left, a little space left on the paper. I want to talk about suffering again. And so he begins in verse 12. Look at what he says. Before he signs off, beloved, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, one more time, let me take my shot at it so that you're not discouraged. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Hey, listen, when those fiery trials come, and they'll come, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Don't meet it with that moment where you stop and go, man, this is weird. Suffering's kind of coming in. Or I see it on the horizon sort of blowing in. This is strange. This is weird. He says, no, man, don't think that. It's not strange. It's it's not weird. Uh, Tim Keller says this. He, one of his most recent books, and I commend it to you if you're struggling with this. In one of his most recent books, it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's an outstanding book, and Keller does a really great job of framing very many of the things that Peter says here in this letter. But on page 3... Keller writes this, No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. You don't get to do comfortable for very long without something coming in and inevitably ruining it, right? Peter's saying, look, life under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, life under the sun, this isn't, this isn't heaven. You're saved. You're a believer. You've been baptized into, by faith, a new life in Christ. And yet at the same time, he says, listen, you're strangers and aliens in this world. Suffering is going to come. So how do we as believers face that? Well, I think the first thing he wants us to know is, look, suffering is not a sign of God's absence. He's going to show us it is rather a sign of his purifying presence. That what suffering does has a purifying effect. In fact, that's the word fiery trial. The, the word fiery trial, actually, that you, you, you would hear the word purity in it. Suffering, it, it has this purpose of, of testing us. In fact, that's where Peter began his letter in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's not the only one that talks about it. In Romans chapter 5, 
Paul says the same thing. James, as he opens up his letter in James chapter 1, he says the same thing. In fact, Paul will say in uh, his letter to the Philippians, one of the verses that is, it's like the verse I've struggled with my whole life to wrap my mind around it. You know, there's some verses you highlight with a, like a yellow highlighter, you know, if you do that. This is one I'd like to highlight with a Sharpie marker, you know. Just take that thing right out. It's Philippians 1.29. You know, you know what Paul says there? It's just been granted to you. The, the word is grace. It's been graciously granted to you, believer. Not only to believe, but to suffer. It is as though Paul views it, and he says, hey, look, As believers, one of the prizes that we have in this life is suffering. And it's because Paul knows the purifying effect that suffering brings. The heightening of our spiritual senses to joy everlasting. You know, as we talk about suffering, and he's going to say in this next verse, as you share in Christ's sufferings, one of the questions is, well, what is that exactly? Is that the suffering I experience when I go, you know, knock on my neighbor's door, and they answer it, and they say, you know, you say, hey, I'm your neighbor, we've never met, but I'd like to tell you about Jesus, and, you know, then they, they shut the door on, on your face. Is that what we're talking about? Well, I think it certainly includes that. There's persecution you might feel in the workplace. There's scorn that you might have on the campus. But really, all experiences of suffering for a believer, as you walk in faith, as you seek to follow Christ in life, all the the suffering you experience on that road of following Christ, all that Peter has in mind. Because all of it, all suffering except for a special category he's going to show us in verse 15, but all suffering is we're following Christ. seeks to threaten our faith. It seeks to undo us. It, it comes in, and so whether it is, it is persecution or a diagnosis, it comes in to, to sabotage our faith. It, it can threaten that, you know what, that in this moment I will choose to believe, I will believe by faith that God is still good and on his throne. That Jesus says, he'll never leave me nor forsake me, even though in this moment he feels a million miles away. He's also telling us suffering is not a parenthesis in life. It's not just something that, hey, listen, here's suffering, and I've got to get over it and get through it as fast as I can so that I can go on and keep living. See, that's, that's how the world, the world looks at suffering and cannot find any meaningful part of it for life. The world sees it as an interruption to life. Believers, we take it in stride, Peter's going to say. Well, look what he says in verse 13. He says, but, but rejoice insofar as, you've shared, as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. Rejoice and and, and be glad. And then he points to when glory is revealed. 
So suffering, whatever benefit it may have in self-improvement, whatever benefit it may have in maturity, Peter's mind, the highest goal, is that suffering somehow fixes our eyes and our attention. So when the glory is revealed, we can behold it. Some may view suffering... um, that we would sit in the midst of life joys only looking at and foreseeing the coming sorrows. But the life of the Christian, it empowers believers to sit in the midst of the the world's sorrows and taste the joy coming. The the view of the world looks at it and you say, well, how, how are things going? And you say, well, man, they're going pretty good. I'm just waiting for the next shoe to fall. That somehow we live from fragile joy to fragile joy, dreading the suffering coming. And Peter would say, no, no, no. We can sit in the midst of the world so, no matter what it is, with a view that tastes the joy to come. Now, I want you to see why he says this. Look at this. In verse 14, he says, If you're insulted for, Christ, for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter's saying, listen, there's an indwelling. This specific example of suffering is, is for the name of Christ, but you can endure suffering because of an indwelling of God's Spirit. You are not left to your own meager resources to walk through suffering. You have the indwelling Spirit of God to depend upon. But not only that, there is this inverse relationship. You're insulted, but blessing comes. One writer tells about the story of William Tyndale. And William Tyndale was one of the very first to translate the Bible into the English language. And at this time, the church was very against that. The the church did not want the language or, or God's Word translated into common language because they didn't want everybody to read the Bible. They thought, man, if everybody starts reading the Bible, they'll start thinking and having ideas of their own, and we might have some heretics. And what we need is we need the church, the priests, to be the only ones that read it, and we'll tell the people what it means. Well, Tyndale, he would not have it. He wanted the the plowboys in the field to have the Word of God on their lips because they could read it in their own language. So Tyndale, he started to translate the Bible, and he was doing it in two phases. He had finished phase one and was running out of money, and so he had decided, well, what I'll do is I'll put phase one out there, I'll sell off what I have, raise the capital, and then I will begin to work on phase two. Well, about this time, it was the Bishop of London, and he'd heard what Tyndale was doing, and he was on a rampage to stop Tyndale. And he began to hunt out all that it is that Tyndale had wrote, and particularly his translations. He opened the coffers and began to shell out money and bought up everything Tyndale had done and all of the phase one translations for the purpose of burning it. And there while it's on fire, Tyndale's counting his money looking at the phase two that he gets to do. And it was this second phase funded by the persecution of the bishop that became the foundation for our English Bible. In fact, you open up the King James Version, over 80% of the way things are phrased in the King James, you know where that comes from? William Tyndale. 
that of the 19 possible ways to translate John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. William Tyndale gives us that translation. It's beautiful. You might be persecuted. You may face suffering. Guess what? In the big scheme, in the big picture, from God's eternal vantage point, there is blessing. Except for, look at verse 15. It says, now listen, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, this is what I really like about this. This is what I'd like for you to pay attention to. The first on the list is murderer. I imagine there are some sitting there hearing this read, and they say murderer, and they say, man, whew, uh, I haven't murdered anybody. I mean, I felt like it a couple of times, but I didn't actually go through with it. Well, but I'll bet you there are some murderers around here. And a thief, well, I've never really stolen anything. I mean, not anything anybody could prove anyway. But I know there's a bunch of thieves around here. And evildoers? Well, I do my best to make sure nobody knows that, but there are some in our midst that I know they're evildoers. And then you know what the last one on the list is? It's like it pulls a rug out from everybody. Meddler. It's like, wait a minute. Murderer and meddler are in the same breath? You know, meddler really means it's this word. Peter probably made up the word. It doesn't appear anywhere else anybody can find. The word literally means concerning yourself with the affairs of another. Being in somebody else's business. Taking it upon yourself to have a good idea and plenty of advice for the one who is seated next to you. And Peter says, listen, when you live your life that way, in everybody else's business, there's a suffering you invite upon yourself. And I think he wants to say he doesn't. I mean, I don't know. Thus says Ross, not Peter. But good for you, you know, right? You're getting what you deserve. If you meddle in the... So here's the thing. This is what I said first service. If we lived in, in a day and age, like today, and you drove up to church today and you were, you took some back roads, you didn't come the way you usually came, and came in through the back and, and parked out on the, on the street that's behind there and walked through the woods to get into church because we were meeting this morning under the threat of our lives. And that when we left, we would just go in twos or threes or fours so that we wouldn't draw attention to ourselves if we lived in that kind of a persecution. Well, the last thing on our minds when we got together would be each other's business, wouldn't it? It would be the affairs of Christ. The problem is with so much luxury, so much comfort, so much time on our hands, it's pretty easy to concern ourselves with each other's business. And Peter says, look, there's a suffering that you invite upon yourself. Don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. 
And then in verse 16, look at what he says. If anyone suffers as a, as a Christian. You know, it's the third time that word is used in the whole New Testament. You, you might not have known that. It, we, everything is Christian today, right? We have Christian cars and Christian books and Christian lampstands. I mean, you know, all, all the kinds of stuff you, you have. Um, but in the day of the New Testament, it was a derogatory term. It was... It was spoken with, with disgust a little bit, if you were a Christian. And here, Peter, he embraces it. So no, you're not ashamed of that anymore. If someone were to call you a Christian, revile you with the name of Christian, because somehow you looked like, sounded like, you were the aroma somehow of Christ, listen, embrace that. That's a good thing. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed wonder how long it took Peter to be able to write those words without cringing, though, you know. He's the one who three times, the first to a teenage girl in the middle of the dark around a fire, takes this big, strong fisherman down. Hey, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his? He says, no, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know the man. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. He's instructing leaders, live in a way that if you were put on trial, there would be plenty of people to come testify to your walk with Jesus. That you'd be found guilty. One writer says this, uh, you know, thinking about suffering as a Christian, like Jesus suffered. Well, how did he suffer? This writer says this. He says, look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? And, and yet he goes around uh, crying. He's weeping. He's described as a man of sorrows. Do you know why? Because he is perfect. Because when you're not absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world. And therefore, what you actually have is that the joy of the Lord happens inside of sorrow. It doesn't come after sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. Weeping drives you into joy. It enhances the joy. And then the joy enables you to actually feel your grief rather than sinking into it. Well, he's going to go on, and in 17 and 18, I want you to see what he says here. He says, For it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Meaning, they don't believe in the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You say, well, wait a minute. Did Peter just change subject? I thought we were talking about suffering. Now we're talking about judgment. Peter's wanting you to know, hey, listen, as you experience suffering in this life, it is a kind of a judgment. Now, we have to understand what judgment means. Judgment doesn't mean condemnation. It's examination, revealing, attesting. It says that we, as we go through that in this life, it has a purifying effect on us, not a condemning effect. We are not being punished. 
the punishment, the penalty for our sin, that was taken care of. If you're a believer in Jesus, that was executed on the cross. You're being purified, matured. You're being shaped into the likeness and image of the Son. And that begins here. But he says, hey, look, that, that begins here. This is God's judgment here. It's his examining here. It's his revealing here. What about those that don't believe? And when their judgment comes? In verse 18, one way to say it, the righteous person is scarcely saved. Because from God's perspective, the holiest, the most loving, the most giving and sacrificial person still needs to be rescued. We are so weighed down with sin and guilt that without grace and mercy shown through Jesus, rescue could never happen. David says in Psalm 130, I could not stand if the record of my sins were kept. None of us can stand before God against the record of our sin. But we rejoice. We're being purified. We've been saved by Jesus. This is not what is at issue is not Jesus vindicating the faithful. He will. The outcome is not in doubt. What we experience in this life is to purify us. You know, one uh, writer said, an old Puritan, Christians can rejoice that the suffering they face in this life is the worst they'll ever face throughout eternity. We've seen the worst, but those who reject Jesus Christ, this, this is the best of life that they'll ever know. Tim Keller, in the book I mentioned earlier, said this, Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life, such as Jonah, imperiled by the storm. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph being sold into slavery. And some suffering, well, some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom of resting in Him. Peter's letting us know, look, suffering is unbearable if you're not certain that God is with you and for you. That's why he says in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That word entrust, it means to place something in the care of another. To take our soul, to take our life, and to place it in the care of God. To say, I trust you. You're the creator. I give my life to you. See, Jesus, when he came, 
He was the one who suffered perfectly. So you might be sitting here this morning and you think, man, all this sounds really great. But if I were to be honest, I'm in the midst of suffering right now and I'm not doing very well. Or I've just come out of suffering and, you know, I look back and I think, that that didn't go very well. Or I see it coming, I know it's on the horizon. The storm clouds are brewing. And you know what? I find myself standing here terrified and afraid and wanting nothing more than for it to blow over. But I fear it won't. You know what's great is at the end of the day, at the end of the day we have a Savior who suffered perfectly on our behalf. That at the end of the day your reconciliation with God, your, your place with Him as a child isn't ultimately dependent on how you suffer. It is our faith in the one who suffered perfectly. See, Jesus lost all of his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we would have access. He was bound so that we would be free. He was cast out so that we could be brought near. Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that could ever really destroy us as believers, and that is being cast away from God. He took that. And so now all the suffering that comes into your life, it purifies you. It shapes you. As a lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, the suffering of a person in Christ turns you in to the beautiful masterpiece you are in Jesus. You know, someone has said you don't really know Jesus in all the ways you can until you realize Jesus is all you have. Suffering has this great way of doing that. Well, there's two scenes at the end of that movie, Shadowlands, about C.S. Lewis that are so poignant. He has fallen in love with this woman who has uh, turned his world entirely upside down. All of the things Lewis knew intellectually and theologically and apologetically have been challenged to his very core. And it, there's this scene towards the end, he's standing up in front of the same group being asked to give the same lecture on the problem of pain, and he stands at the podium, and he can hardly speak for a moment, and then he finally says, Yesterday, a friend of mine, a very brave, good woman, collapsed in terrible pain. One minute she was fit and well, the next she was in agony. She's now in the hospital, and this morning I was told that she is suffering from cancer. Why? See, if you love somebody, you don't want them to suffer. You, you can't bear it. You, you want to take their suffering onto yourself. And even if I feel like this, oh, how must God? It's beginning to dawn on Lewis at this time in his life what it meant that God would send his son, Jesus to take our suffering. Well, she begins to get better for a moment. 
And one of Lewis's friends comes and says, See, all your prayers paid off, Lewis. To which he answers, That's not why I pray. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I am helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. And then right after that, it goes to this scene and joy. The love of his life dies. He recounts the conversation he had with her when he finally admitted to her that even in this pain that he experienced, it was, it was worth it for the joy they had. And he's sitting down with her son. Her son's name is Douglas. He's about nine years old, which is the same age Lewis was when his mother died. And he begins to wrestle and realize that when his mother died, he never entered into the suffering. He went to his mind, and he never dealt with it. And so there he is, this man very inept, trying to console a nine-year-old that doesn't understand. And so no words can be spoken, Lewis puts his arms around her, about around him. He says, I loved your mother very much. And then it pans off, and you hear these words from Lewis narrated. Why love if losing hurts so much? Why suffer? I have no answers anymore, only the life I've lived. Twice in this life I've been given the choice, as a boy and as a man. The boy chose safety, the man, the man chooses suffering. The pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. He's the one who wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia, all that is bad will become untrue as joy is restored. Peter wants to encourage us. Beloved, let us be encouraged. You know, we get this great picture here um, talking about suffering, bringing life. Paul knew that all so well, that it was the suffering, it was the death, it was the burial and the resurrection of Jesus that has this transforming effect on us. We're reminded because of what Jesus has done and what God has revealed, and even in this picture of baptism, that our life as believers is not about the improvement of ourself. It is about us dying with Christ and being raised to new life. Romans chapter 6 says this, and then I'll turn it over to Brent. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He goes on and says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus.
we celebrate this morning as uh, those who are baptized, they are making this public declaration, this outward declaration of what has taken place inside, that by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus, they have been made new. As they go down, this is a symbol of the death they have died. As they come out of the water, it is the new life to which they've been born into. And so what we do as the church is we do not sit stoically by and say, wow, that was really great. We stand and cheer and shout and praise. You you hear what I'm saying? And I got people watching you. If you don't clap, there's no joy in your heart. You'll never, we'll never hear from you again. No, I'm just kidding. It's a great picture. It's a beautiful thing we get to celebrate. We'll get to hear a little from each of these friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ that are being baptized. Let me pray for us, and I'll turn it over to Brent. Father, you're good. You're good all the time. Give us eyes of faith to be able to see that. Father, as suffering comes in in, in whatever form it it is, to purify us, to shape us, to mold us, maybe, Father, to, to discipline us. Would we lean into that for the joy that it attunes our hearts to? So, Father, as we see here in just a few moments the picture of baptism that the church has celebrated for 2,000 years. Father, would we enter into what it is that, uh, that has taken place already in the lives of each of these believers. We, we celebrate you for that. We give you all the praise. May the name of your son Jesus be exalted above all things. And Father, that we would do that by the power of your spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.